We're starting a brand new series today, and it's called Grace Period. And I got to tell you, I am extremely excited to preach this sermon and to preach this series because the topic that we are going to be learning about and exploring in this series is the most encouraging, empowering, liberating topic that you could experience in your life. It's the most empowering, encouraging, liberating, and inspiring topic in the entire Bible. And it's also one of the most controversial topics in the Bible. How many of y'all like to get in on some controversy? You like to, some of you Facebook bomb throwers, you're like, yeah, let me get in on that. It's, it, this, this topic that I'm going to talk about was extremely controversial in the first century, in the first century church. In fact, it was the most controversial topic. In, in the early church. And in fact, they had, um, they had to pull a council together of all the apostles. James was there and Peter was there. Paul was there. They had to have a council in Jerusalem to discuss this topic because there were, it was a hotly debated topic. Okay. In fact, the apostle Peter and the apostle Paul almost came to blows over this topic. It's, it's recorded in the Bible. They, they squared off, they faced off face to face. They almost threw hands over this topic because it's such a controversial topic. But it's a very, very powerful topic. And when I tell you what the topic is, you're going to go, what's so controversial about that? That's, it's not, you know, we're not going to be talking about like uh, money or politics or sex or race or any of the things that normally stir up controversy, although this topic does touch on all of that. Uh, but the topic that I'm going to talk to you about and the topic that everybody was fighting about in the first century is the topic of grace. That was the topic. That was the subject the concept or the teaching or the doctrine of grace. That's what, that, that's what was so hotly debated. Now, some of you come from backgrounds where you understand or you've learned a lot about grace. Some of you come from traditions where, you know, you don't even, that's not even discussed. You don't even know what that's about. Or some of you come from no religious background at all. And so the, the idea of grace just doesn't even resonate with you. But when the Apostle Paul wrote about grace, here's the word he used. He used the word charis. And this was the Greek word for grace, and what it means is the Lord's favor freely extended to undeserving people. That's what it means. It means leaning towards undeserving people with unmerited favor or blessing. It means loving someone who does not deserve your love. It means embracing someone who does not deserve to be embraced. That's what it means. It actually has this sense of leaning forward. The whole, like, inclination, a disposed towards is the idea. And what the Apostle Paul was preaching and what the early church was debating was this topic because inherently human beings, by our very nature, we are merit-driven species. We need an external measurement to tell us how valuable or worthy we are. How many of y'all know what I'm talking about? We, we need some kind of external indication for us to, to, to know how good I am and how good you are, right? How'd you do on the SAT? How'd you do on the LSAT? How'd you do on the MCAT? How'd you do on the GRE, right? How much money is in your bank account, right? How good looking are you? How much can you bench? Right? 
We need an external indicator to tell us how good we are and to tell us how good somebody else is so that we can arrange ourselves properly in the pecking order in the hierarchy of society, right? That's what we do. The problem with this model, which is the model that all of us have, is that it, it, it never brings us what we really need. The greatest human need that each one of us has is the need to be loved. That's our greatest human need, and our greatest fear is the fear of rejection, of not being loved, right? And when we desire to be loved and long to be loved and we fear being rejected, then what we do is we have to try to figure out how to gain love and avoid rejection. And so what we do is we, we try, we struggle, we fight, we are filled with anxiety as we try to gain love and avoid rejection. And so we'll do whatever we can do to prove ourselves. Whatever we can do to prove our merit and prove our worth, that's what we will do so that we'll experience love, okay? This is, this is all of us. This is every single one of us. And along comes God and says, actually, don't do that. Don't do that at all. Because while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. For by grace you are saved through faith and not of yourselves. It's a gift from God. So that no one can boast, right? It's this idea that God's unmerited favor will come to you. But what we do is we end up, when we try to gain it ourselves, we end up on a spectrum that I'm calling the spectrum of self-righteousness and shame, right? Self-righteousness is where we get to when we think, when we look around and we go, I'm actually doing pretty good, actually, compared to these other people. I think I'm doing all right. And so we begin to say, I'm, I'm, I'm doing, I'm here. Other people are here, right? When I, when I start thinking that I'm doing pretty well, I'm going to gravitate towards self-righteousness. I really am. And so are you. You, you really are. <laughs> You're going to go, well, look, I mean, I'm doing pretty good. And this person obviously isn't doing so well. If they could just get their act together, right? If they could just do better then they could be like me. That's some of us, right? But then when we screw up, when things go badly, when things go wrong, we end up at the other end of the spectrum full of shame and condemnation. I'm horrible, right? I can't pull myself out of this. I'm in a shame spiral. I don't, I don't know how to get out of this, right? So we end up on this spectrum because we are a, we are a people. We are, a, we are creatures that feel like we need to merit God's favor and merit the value and the worth of other, of other people because we need to show people how important and valuable we are. And in the middle of this, God comes with this idea of grace and he says, I'm not gonna, we're not playing that game. I'm not impressed by you. Nothing that you do impresses me. Nothing that you do makes me think you're super special. This is God talking, right? And nothing you do makes me not love you. So I'm not interested in your self-righteousness and I'm not interested in your shame. I love you in the midst of wherever you are right now, whether you're doing well or whether you're not doing well. My favor is poured out towards you. That's what, that's what grace is. And what I want to do in this series is I want you to experience it fresh and anew. If you've never experienced it before, I want you to experience grace for the first time. It will tr radically transform your life, fundamentally transform your life. I was in my 30s before I experienced the grace of God, fundamentally transformed my life. I, had, I, I stopped striving for God's love, right? Actually, I wasn't striving for God's love at one point. I was striving against God's love. And what I learned is that God actually loved me still. His grace was sufficient even then, right? 
And so wherever you are on your own spiritual journey and your own spiritual trajectory, what I want us to experience during this series, all of us to experience the unmerited blessing and favor of an almighty God who loves you right exactly where you are. Is that all right with somebody today? I feel like, I feel like we need that. The writers of Hebrews put it this way. He said, let us therefore come boldly, boldly to the throne of grace that we may obtain mercy and find grace to help in the time of need. What he's saying is, I want you to walk before God's throne like a child walks uh, into his father's study. My children do not stand on uh, politeness and propriety when they come into my office. They come burning. It doesn't matter if I'm on a phone with somebody very, very important. They come barreling in, tackle me, smash me to the ground. I mean, they just, right? Because they come boldly because I'm their father. What, what the scripture is telling us today is, and this is what I want for all of us as we go through this series, come boldly before God because his love is just pouring out to you right now. It's just being extended to you in ways that you can't even imagine. It's just being poured out to you in ways that you cannot imagine. So what I want to do for today is I want to talk about our four major weaknesses, our four basic weaknesses, okay? And then I want to talk about our four basic responses to our weakness, right? Because we're either filled with shame or self-righteousness and we try to cover our weakness. And then I want to end with telling you God's response to your weakness. Is that all right? So if you're taking notes, follow along. I'm going to run through this uh, and, and kind of introduce this whole series um, this morning. Um, our first major weakness is what I call our inclinations. Our inclinations. Um, when I had a I've talked about this car before. I had a 1986 red Subaru many years ago, and this car was not a good car. This car was a bad car. It was a troubled car. It had a lot of problems. One of the problems that it had was a misalignment uh, 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 with the steering wheel. And so what my car would do is if I didn't hold the steering wheel very tightly, it had an inclination to go to the right. It just, it just that's the way it went. So, so when I'm driving down the road, I'd have to hold the wheel or else my, if I let go of the wheel, my car is just going to go to the right. Yeah, it's just, just going to float over there. And the problem is, without, if I didn't fix it, it actually got worse. For me, it got to the point where like, if I, if I wanted to turn right, I just let go of the handle. I just let go of the steering wheel altogether. Just make a right-hand turn and then boom, grab the handle again, right? If I let go, we just go in a circle, just to the right. Because that's the direction that my car wanted to go. All of us have inclinations. We have tendencies in our, in our life. And if we don't hold on to the wheel of our life, we will run into those inclinations, whatever they are. The, the, the scripture in Galatians, it says that, that the flesh is, at, is in conflict with the spirit and the spirit is in conflict with the flesh. It says they're in conflict with one another. In other words, what that means is God has a path for you, a, play, a direction that he wants you to go, but your natural inclination is not to follow that path. Did anybody ever notice that? Like you just don't naturally do the righteous thing all the time. Am I talking to somebody this morning? Like I've never had to teach my children to lie. Never had to teach them to do that. I never had to teach them to not share their stuff. I never had to teach selfishness to my children. They already got that. Their steering wheel is already going that direction, right? I never have to teach sin to my kids. That's their inclination. That's our inclination. We are of the flesh, right? In fact, if you're trying to figure out, do you have any tendencies or inclinations? I just put a few up here and you can just look to see if you can find yourself anywhere. Pride, Anybody? Don't, you don't have to raise your hand. I, I don't want anybody admitting anything this morning. But here are our inclinations. We're, we're inclined towards pride, right? 
I can do it. I don't need anybody. I don't need you. And I'm better than you. Um, greed. We want what we want when we want it. Envy. Or no, anger. Right? We just boil over with anger because something's didn't go, something didn't go our way. Envy is I want what you have. Right? I can't believe you have that and I don't have that. Um, um, lust. Sexual desire that is out of line with, out of misaligned. Um, overindulgence of anything. Grabbing, wanting more and more of whatever it is. Um, indifference. This is apathy. This is a sin. Like, who cares, right? I don't care. That's a, that's, that's, that's a, that's a bent or a tendency or an inclination. Um, and then I put all of the above. Because I think, honestly, if we're honest, if you were checking the box, if we could get real down into the heart of hearts, right? You've probably, you, you, you were probably inclined to one or more. Maybe I should say, you know, A through D or something like that, right? We're all, we all have inclinations like that. And what I want to say is that doesn't have to define you. That does not have to um, condemn you, right? Because even in the midst of that weakness, God's grace is sufficient. God's grace. And here's what happens. I won't get way into this because I'm going to get into this later. But our inclinations are, tend to come from either nature or nurture, right? A lot of the things that you don't like about yourself, tendencies and inclinations, I'm going to get into somebody's mailbox here. Inclinations and tendencies that you have in your life are the very ones that you despise most that you saw in your family, your parents or your grandparents, right? You saw that tendency, you absorbed that, and what you said to yourself is, I will never be like them. I am never going to be that way. I'm never going to act that way, right? And then you find yourself 20 years later doing that, and then you have an option. You can blame your parents and say, well, they're rotten and they made me bad, right? Or you can say, God, your grace is sufficient for me. And you know what? I'm going to forgive them and I'm going to forgive myself and I'm going to move on with life and walk in the newness of life because I have a loving father who loves me and adores me even though I'm struggling with this inclination. Do you know what I'm talking about this morning? So, so inclination is one of our main four weaknesses. The second one is what I call inhibitions. Inclinations lead to sins of commission. Inhibitions lead to sin of omission. Things that you should do but you are afraid to do. You feel too inhibited. You, t you feel too afraid. And you feel afraid because you're afraid of what other people think about you. You care about what other people think about you and you know you should do right, but you don't do it because you don't want to be mocked. You don't want to be, you know, you, you don't want to be rejected. You want to be loved. And so you have this weakness and you don't do the thing that you know you need to do. The, the reason it took me so long to, to become a pastor, to plant one family church, is this sin right here, this weakness, this in inhibition. This, this like fear of like, well, what if I mess up? What if I screw up? What if people laugh at me? What if I turn out to be, you know, what, is, what if it's a bust? Like the whole thing, a bust. What's the, what happens if I, and so I, I don't do something that I should do because I feel inhibited. Is anybody not inhibited to raise your hand and say, that's me right now? That's you, right? All the inhibited people are just not doing that. So it's, it's, it's what happens to us when we're afraid of, of other people. I'll, I'll tell you this, and I don't want to, this is, I don't, I've never shared this. This is very, a, a very intense story that from when I was a kid, I saw something that I have always regretted not doing, any, not doing anything about when I was a kid. And um, I'll just touch on it briefly. 
when I was about nine or 10 years old, my family, we lived in Lancaster, Ohio, and um, a group of us guys were playing in uh, the barn. In, in the, we were out in the country, and there, we were in this barn, and we were all running around, messing around this barn. It was about four or five of us. And um, the father of one of the boys came in, and for whatever reason, he was upset at his son. And I don't know why. I don't know, I, I don't know what happened. But he came in, and he was in a rage, and he was storming in, into this place. And the, the, the group of us boys were just kind of like wide-eyed because this dad was stomping around and being really loud and aggressive. And without going into detail, uh, he's yelling at his son. And then right in front of all of us, he struck his son very hard. And it, it was so startling. I mean, I, I don't want to get it, but he struck him with his closed fist hard in the face. And this boy, this boy you know, flew across the barn, fell out, and the dad just stormed out. So the, the rest of us guys in that room were, were shocked. We're just standing there looking at, at, our, at our friend who was on the ground. And our friend, you know, held his face and ran out, tears streaming down his eyes. And what was surprising, which I, I never really sort of unpacked until years later, is that the rest of us boys that were in that, that barn, we're all like nine or 10 years old, we're little guys. We, we never said anything about it. We didn't, we didn't even, we didn't mention it to each other. We didn't mention it to him. I never told my parents. I could have told my dad. This guy was sort of a prominent guy in our small town, uh, relatively well-known guy. And for whatever reason, this sort of blanket of shame or fear or inhibition or anxiety came over all of, I don't know what it was. And nobody said a thing, right? I think God sometimes says to us, in, in retrospect, I mean, you know, I, I trust God's working in, in, in that whole situation. But for years, I thought, man, why didn't I say anything? Why didn't I say anything? And the reason was because I was inhibited. We all were, right? God is saying to some of us today, he's saying, listen, I don't want you to fear people. I don't want you to fear people. I want you to know that I am with you and that I, you don't have anything to fear. You, you have nothing to fear. When God is calling you to stand up in the gap for somebody, do it. When God is calling you into a, a calling or a mission that he has for you, do it. Don't be inhibited. Don't be, inf- don't be afraid. Don't let that weakness paralyze you and keep you from, from becoming who God made you to be and, and from doing what God called you to do. In fact, the scripture puts it like this. Uh, Hebrews 13, it says, The Lord is my helper. I will not be afraid. What can mere mortals do to me? Some of us today need to get over the fear of what will happen to you when you step out and do what God is calling you to do. When you step out into the, into the calling and the purpose of God, God will be with you. The Lord says, I will never leave you, nor will I forsake you. Do not be afraid. The scripture says, do not be afraid more than it says anything else. Right? Because God says, I, this is your weakness. I want to meet you in your weakness. All right? Number three is what I'm calling infirmities. This is our third kind of weakness that we struggle with. Infirmities are just those things that are put upon us externally. It may be a disease. It may be a physical disorder. It may be a, a mental health issue. It's something that happens to you that you don't have any, any ability to overcome on your own. It's an, it's an infirmity, right? It's a sickness or something like that. I, there are men and women of God in our congregation today that I know are plagued with a, with, with a chronic illness. And by God's grace, they continue to walk out 
their purpose and their calling in God, irrespective of this infirmity that grasped them. The, 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 the scripture says this in Matthew 8. It says, he took up our infirmities and he bore our diseases. What that means is his grace is right there in that weakness. His grace is right there in that weakness. He's in your infirmity. He is in your, your inhibition. He, he's, he's right there. He's right there in your, in, what, in your inclinations. He's right there in the midst of it by his grace. And the fourth one is uh, what I'm calling inabilities. Inabilities. This is your fourth weakness. And what this means is the stuff that you are not good at. The stuff that you cannot do. And, and this is a weakness, and sometimes it can be debilitating for us. There are things that you are not good at. When I was in college, I had an opportunity to go um, and do a summer course in, uh, in New Jersey at Princeton. And I, had a, I got to do this summer course, and I was very excited. I was going to be at the Woodrow Wilson School, and I was going to be there. It was going to be amazing. So I go, I go there on this summer course, and I, and I go to the first day of class. And the first day of class was an advanced statistics course. Now, those of you who know me know that rudimentary math was my highest level of achievement in mathematics. Like I can add, I can subtract, I can multiply small numbers. <laughs> Division is a little out of reach for me, right? That's, that's where it stops for me. My children do the math in our house to teach, you know, when we need to figure out something. So I walk into this classroom and there's a test or not a test, a, 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 an assignment. And it's got like eight problems on it with, with letters and numbers and symbols and all of this stuff. And I'm just looking at it going, I have, I have like, there's nothing that does not register with anything in my brain. I don't even understand what you're asking. I don't even, I don't understand anything about this piece of paper. It's just, it's just stuff on a, it's just stuff on a piece of paper. And so our, our instructor, professor said, I want you guys to take these home. I want you to do these eight questions tonight and then bring them back tomorrow. So I said, okay. So I took my thing, my assignment, and I went to the library and I sat down and I looked at the first problem. And like, this is before Google. Like, I mean, even Google wouldn't have helped me. I mean, I wouldn't even know what to call these things. And so I sat there and I, and I sat there for like four hours. And I'm thinking, man, this, I'm going to be found out. I'm an imposter here, right? They're going to find out, yeah, I can't do this. And they're going to go, why did we let this guy in? What were we thinking, right? So I sat there for several hours trying to think about how to do this. And at one point I started, maybe this is just me, but at one point I started thinking like, how could I get out of this in a way that I could maintain my dignity, right? But I could still escape somehow, right? I, I literally thought this, like, if I got into a small traffic accident, like, not one that would kill me, but like a small broken bone or something, and then people would go, oh, he had to go home. You know, it's not because he wasn't smart enough, he broke his arm, and so that's why. So I literally was fantasizing about, how can I get out of this? So I, I finally, after like eight hours of looking at problem number one, I called my dad, and I go, dad, I can't, I can't do this. Like, I'm, I'm way out of my depth. Everybody else is zipping through the problem. I'm, I'm like, out of my depth. I don't even understand the things, the, uh, the symbols on this document. I don't understand. And his words to me were amazing. He said, listen, if all you do all summer is work on that one problem, then just work on that one problem all summer long. If you don't ever solve that problem, that's okay. 
Just keep working on that problem. And, you know, if you solve that problem, then move on to problem number two. And this is the first day, right? We got three months here. Move on to problem number two, right? But, but just stay at that problem. And what happened was amazing because I spent the night, you know, slept that night, didn't answer any, prob- didn't answer any problems, brought my thing to my professor the next day. And I go, man, I got to tell you, like, I'm not, it's not happening. And to my surprise, I wasn't the only one. There were like three other people with limited um, cognitive and intellectual abilities in the class besides me. And the, the, the professor was like, that's okay. And the professor like sat with us for hours every day throughout the entire summer. He would stay up with us until midnight, helping us work through this problem. And what I learned in that moment, what I learned from that experience is if I can expose my weakness, I might receive help for my weakness. If I hide it, right, then I'm, then I'm looking for a car to hit me, okay? But if I will expose it, then there, there will be help. When, when God says, my strength is made perfect in your weakness, what he means is expose your weakness. He says, show me your weakness because then I'm going to show you where I can work in your life. Show me your strength and I'm not impressed. Show me your weakness and I will lean in there. I will be inclined towards your weakness because my grace is sufficient for you. All right, I'm going gonna, I'm gonna to go quickly through the, 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 the last part of this. Um, because when we have these weaknesses, because we are, because we are filled with shame by our weaknesses, uh, and because we want to hide our weaknesses and demonstrate our strength, we have four responses, four major responses to our weaknesses. Um, and the first one is this. The first one is defensiveness. Have you ever, have you ever, somebody, oh, we're getting some mm-hmms and yeah, mm, yep. Um, when somebody touches on your weakness or when your weakness is almost exposed, when there's a threat to expose your weakness, your natural tendency is to defend yourself. And the reason you want to defend yourself is because your identity is wrapped up in your strength. And when a weakness is exposed, then your identity is, 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 is threatened. But when we understand that we are weak and that God's grace is sufficient, then we are not, our identity is not threatened by the exposure of our weakness. Right? So when we're, when we're defensive, we tend to do one of three, three things. We fight, we flee, or we freeze. That's what we do. When somebody almost touches on one of our weaknesses, and maybe some of you are doing right now, right now like you're actually, right now, you're freezing right up, right now, because something about what I'm telling you is touching a weakness, right? And that's what we do. When, when we first started the One Family Church, I, rem- I remember very clearly having zero idea what I was doing. That, that part I remember. I remember just going like, I don't know what I'm doing. And I was a, like a week, I was actually a day ahead of the congregation in my sermon prep. So like, just, just trust me. Like what I was teaching, I had learned the day before. Just for those of you that were here, some of you may have known that already. But I was barely ahead of everybody. And so what I needed to do was to somehow present myself as, as you know, like a person who knows what they're doing. And so I said, well, what I need to do is I need to be strong and I need to be bold and I need to make decisions. I need to be clear. And that's what I need to do. Well, people could see right through that, you know, because they were like, this guy's just doing stuff and he doesn't really know what he's doing. And I had an older brother in the, in the church and I'm not even going to mention his name. He's still here and he's awesome. I had an older brother in the church that pulled me aside and he said, hey, can I just tell you something? He said, if you want people to buy into what you're saying in your leadership, you should allow them to weigh in. 
Because if they don't weigh in, then they can't buy in. Because you're making these initiatives and you're saying, hey, why don't we do this or, or let's do this? And you haven't gotten anybody's feedback before doing that thing. And I remember he left my office that day after giving me this very kind, he did it very gently. And he left my office and I just remember stomping around for a long time going, who does he think he is? He's not a church planner. I mean, he has no idea what I'm doing. Like, who is this guy? What is the matter with this guy? And I did that for about 24 hours. And then finally I went, yeah, he's right, actually. Right? And it changed my leadership style because I began to realize, like, hey, when you're leading people, like, why don't you take a minute and not act like you know everything? Why don't you take a moment and listen to the wisdom of people who are around you? Why don't you take a moment and absorb some, some insight and experiences from other people so that you can do something? So what he was doing was exposing a weakness. What I was doing was defending myself. And if I would have continued to defend myself, I would have continued to make decisions that would not have been helpful or useful to the people I was trying to lead. It, ch it changed me because I allowed my weakness to be exposed. I allowed, the scripture says this, confess your faults to one another and pray for one another so that you may be healed. Because if your weakness is not confessed, come on somebody, if your weakness is not confessed and you don't allow anyone to pray for your weakness, then your weakness cannot heal. It needs to be exposed to the light. It needs to be exposed to, to the grace of God. So he says, confess, all right? So number, number two, our, our second response is after defensiveness is what I call defiance. Defiance is not where you defend yourself. It's where you say, I'm not even wrong. In fact, you're wrong for thinking I'm wrong. Okay? Defiance is like, I'm going to do what I'm going to do. I don't care what you, what you think about that. Um, I'm going to tell another story. I'm just telling all kinds of stories today. So we'll, we'll mop this up next week and we'll, you know, get everything squared away. But when I, was, when I was not a believer and I was a rebellious, angry young man living in Los Angeles and, you know, f f fighting the power... Um, I, my grandmother sent me a letter, and it was the sweetest, well, it was the sweetest letter in retrospect. I didn't think it was a sweet letter when I received it when I was living in L.A. all, all those years ago. Because the letter, in essence, said, Brent, I love you, and I'm worried about your soul. I'm concerned that your soul is, is not right with God, and I'm, a, and, I'm, and I'm worried about the path that you're going down. You know, I didn't receive that letter well at that time. When you're, when you're like, when you've got your heels dug in to your weakness, to your sin, and somebody reaches out even lovingly and tries to touch that, um, you can have a, an adverse response, right? Yeah. So I wrote my grandmother a letter back. Dear Grandma. Okay? And I used all my big words on that one. All my big words. And I just, man, I just, I just crafted that letter so that it would just cut. So that I could say, who do you think you are telling me? You know, you, you, you have no idea my experiences. You got an eighth grade education, Grandma. I'm a Rhodes Scholar. I know what I'm doing. You have no idea what I'm... And I wrote that letter, and I sealed that letter, and I sent that letter. It was, yeah, I know, some of you are like, oh my God, man. I hope God's grace is sufficient. That was low, dirty, nasty, man. What's the matter? But I did. And I felt real righteous about that, too. I thought, well, I squared her up, put her in her place. Now she'll know, right? Man, that was bad. Can you guys believe that? Anyway. Um, so, so that was my response. Well, it wasn't long after that that my grandmother got sick, got very sick with cancer. 
And my sisters said, you better go see your grandmother. You better go see your grandma. You need to make things right. And so I, I booked a, a ticket to St. Louis from LA and I was getting ready to go. And my grandmother, her health declined and she went into a coma. And so she was not communicative at all. And I went, I still, you know, I flew here, I flew back to St. Louis. They lived over here in Bridgeton. And I went and, and I sat down next to her bed and I began to pour, pour out my apology to her. I began to go, oh, I'm so sorry, Grandma. I just, you know, I was, still wasn't a believer and I still didn't like the letter and all that, but I, I knew that I had done wrong. So I said, I'm just, I'm sorry, Grandma. I didn't, you know, I don't know. I just was pouring it out. And she had been in a coma, non-communicative for like three or four days. And I'm going to just tell you this because this is true and you should know this. But my grandmother, in this midst of this comatose state, right, the very, very end of her life, she reaches over, she touches my hand. I knew I should I knew I shouldn't have told this story. I knew it. I actually told this story for the first time to uh, Art this week, a guy, um, Art Bollinger, one of our ministry council members. And the same thing happened in that conversation. She passed my hand. She goes, she actually, she passed my hand. Her eyes didn't open. And she said, I forgive you. I forgive you. Just like that. The truth is she had already forgiven me before I came. She had already. And that is a demonstration of the grace of God when we are defiant in his face. The scripture says, while you were yet sinners, Christ died for you. His love extends to you even when you are in active rebellion and defiance of his love. He's chasing you when you are not chasing him. He's coming after you when you are running from him. He longs to be in relationship with you when you long to be as far away from him as you possibly can. That's what grace means, right? Some of us today need to know that you know the stuff that you have done that has broken the heart of God. And what I want you to know today is that God is patting you on the hand and he's got his arms around you and he's saying, I forgive you and I love you and you're mine and you always will be mine and nothing can separate you from my love. You are my child and I love you and I want you to experience that grace. Amen. I'm not telling any more heavy stories. I have a couple more, but I'm not telling them. Um, The third way we respond to our weakness is deception. 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 What what I mean by that is we either try to hide it from other people or we hide it from ourselves, and sometimes we do both at the same time, right? I don't want you to see my weakness, so I'm going to cover my weakness. When we were looking for homes years ago, we we went and saw a home here in U-City, and the garage was all tricked out. It was beautiful. Like the, the, the garage was, it was a finished garage with lights and drywall and all this. I was like, this is going to be awesome. I can meet, you know, this is going to be my office. It's going to be great. So we go, we look at this, uh, this house and then we came back to look at it one more time and, and the garage had been painted and it was beautiful. We came back to look at it one more time and I look at the wall and there was this huge sort of black spot of mold on the drywall. And I walk over to it and I poked it with my finger and it just poof, right? It just, because what had happened was there was a massive leak behind the wall in the brick and the somebody, not going to blame anybody, somebody had covered that up 
with drywall and painted it and said, here's the weakness, here's the flaw in the, in the building and in the structure, but what I'm going to do is I'm going to deceive you. I'm going to cover that, right? Because I don't want you to see that, okay? Now, what happens is I had to go in there and pull all that drywall out eventually, and we had to get all of that uh, tuck pointed and fixed, and it was very expensive. But what we do in our lives, we do the same thing. We cover our sin from other people. Jesus used the term whitewashed sepulchers to describe the, the, the Pharisees. What he meant is sepulchers where they would put the ashes of somebody who had died. And he said, you're full of dead men's bones, but you've, you've polished the outside of the vase to make yourself appear like you have no weaknesses, like there's no cracks in the armor. You put this guise on, you put this pretense on so you, so you can deceive other people. And what happens is a lot of times, some of us, in doing that, we end up deceiving ourselves as well. We put up the facade long enough that we, that we actually fake out ourselves and other people. And here's what the scripture says, 1 John 8. I'm about to close. If we claim to be without sin, we deceive ourselves and the truth is not in us. When we deceive ourselves or others, the truth is not in us. God's grace can only act in the light. It cannot act in the darkness. It cannot act when we cover. It can only act when we expose. Okay? All right. Number four, last one. Our fourth way of responding to our weakness is defeat. Defeat is when we just go, I, I can't do it. I just give up. I can't, I'm not defending myself anymore. I'm not defiant anymore. I'm not gonna try to ch- deceive anyone. I'm just, I'm, just, I'm just defeated. I cannot win. There's nothing that I can do to win. And that may be where some of you are today. Some of you... So, we're all in one of those categories. We're all experiencing one of those categories or at least tempted to or inclined to in one area or another of our life. And what God is saying is like, I want to work in the very midst of your weakness. So what is God's response? I'm gonna give you this last verse. This is from um, 2 Corinthians. as the apostle Paul. When his weakness had been exposed, his weaknesses had been exposed to himself and to the church. And he prayed to God and he said, take the thorn out of my flesh. Take this weakness away from me. And God said to him, my grace, somebody, my grace is sufficient for you. My grace is sufficient. And then he went on and he said, for my power is made perfect in weakness. In other words, I want your weakness because it's in your weakness that I can act. It's in your very weakness that I can be strong. My power is made perfect in your weakness. So don't keep your weakness from me. Give me your weakness so that I can do the work that I need to do in you. I can give you my power and I can only give it to you in your weakness. Therefore, Paul said, I will boast all the more gladly about my weaknesses. I'm going to tell you where I'm weak. I'm going to boast about my weaknesses so that Christ's power may rest upon me. He's saying, I'm going to expose my weaknesses because I want to be powerful in the Lord. That is why, for Christ's sake, I delight in weaknesses, the Apostle Paul said. Now, you've got to remember, the Apostle Paul was trying to, trying to lead the church. And he's saying, you know what? I delight in my weaknesses. I delight in my weaknesses. I'm not, I'm not hiding them from you. I delight in them. Why? I delight in insults, in hardships, in persecutions, in difficulties, in all my weaknesses. I delight. For when I am weak then I am strong. Here's what God is saying to somebody here today. Let me have your inclinations. Let me have them. Let me have your inhibitions. Let me have your infirmities. 
let me have your inabilities expose those to me because that's where I can that's where I can work that's where I can be strong in you you don't need to defend yourself you don't need to defy me you don't need to deceive yourself and others and you do not have to live in defeat give me your weaknesses and let my grace be sufficient for you let my grace pour out upon you let my grace fill your heart fill your mind fill your life let me let me give you strength and liberty and power through the through the joy and the abundance of the overflowing of my grace it will free you from the bondage of self-righteousness it will free you from the bondage of shame when I came up with this series title and I'm closing with this I use the phrase grace period right because we understand what that means it means like there's a period of time where you get a little leeway get a little some of us see God that way like ah kind of screwing up but maybe there'll be a little grace period right maybe there'll be a little leeway right and then we're hoping for that because we don't want God's hammer to come down but what the series title actually means is grace period full stop grace period my grace is sufficient for you my grace is made perfect in your weakness my power is made perfect when your weakness is exposed to me so what I want you to experience today is the grace of God poured out upon you as we close today I want I want you to do something that I don't normally do I want you to just take a moment close your eyes bow your heads and I promise I won't, do, I won't embarrass you or do anything strange. But if you need to experience God's grace today, what I want you to do is to make an affirmation of that personally. Just by holding up your hand. and Just hold up your hand and just let acknowledge to yourself between you and God, I need your grace. I need your grace in my weakness. I need your grace in my disabilities. I need your grace in my infirmities. I need your grace in my, in my inhibitions. I need your grace in my inclinations. I just need your grace. I just want to experience your grace. Praise God. Praise God. Okay, you can put your hands down. Let me pray for us. Heavenly Father, all of us need your grace. If we don't know it, then we need it worse than, than we could possibly know. And today, God, I would just pray for each and every person in this room. Everybody here at U-City, everybody at Shaw, everybody online, all of our brothers are stepping into the light ministries. Everybody, everybody that hears this message, God, I pray that our hearts would be receptive to the outpouring of your grace. I pray that we would be filled with your love. I pray that all of our condemnation and shame would just melt away under the magnificent beauty and power of your grace. I pray that our self-righteousness and religiousness would burn away under the searing power of your grace and of your love and of your mercy. And God, I just pray that each and every one of us would open our hearts today and receive you and love you and be empowered and encouraged and inspired by the grace that you extend to each and every one of us, even though we don't deserve it. And Father, for this, each and every one of us opens our hearts to you today. We say thank you to you. And we pray, Lord God, that our lives would walk in this beautiful grace and that we, we would do it in a way that brings honor 
and praise and glory to you. And it is in your son's name we pray. And everybody said, amen, amen, amen. As we close today, I want to invite you to respond to the message. And one of the ways that you can respond is through prayer. If you need prayer, we have our prayer team in the side auditorium. You can go and have, have our prayer folks pray with you. Uh, if you want to um, give today, if you want to be a part of expanding the mission and, and proclaiming the gospel of grace around the world, you can give. You can do that on the um, QR code on the back of your seat. Um, that's also where you can sign up for Next Steps. I, w- I would invite you come to Next Steps tonight. If you haven't come to Next Steps and you haven't become a member of One Family Church, come tonight. Five o'clock at the Shaw Campus. You can register on that QR code. Um, and, and come. And even if you don't register, we'll save a seat for you. Um, if you want to register and come and spend time in fellowship with your brothers and sisters in Christ at the football, football game in a couple weeks, um, uh, you can register for, for that online as well. If you want to take communion this morning, we're going to have communion in the side auditorium. And if you want to experience um, and recognize the, the very act that, that created the grace, you know, it was Christ's sacrifice that extended the grace to us. It's that he took his sin upon us and then he imputed his righteousness to us in this transaction we call grace. And so I, I would invite you to, to take a moment and, and take communion. Um, and don't forget it also, if you want to help others in need, if you want to help the refugees um, here in St. Louis, you can grab one of these boxes, fill them up, take it to somebody in need, extend God's love to them in that way. Would you stand with me now as we close out our service? I want to invite you to raise your hearts, raise your voices, and join us as we sing in worship and close out this service. Amen.